This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I am so excited today because we have with us Carol Willing, a leader in the Python community and core developer for CPython, JupyterHub, and MyBender.org. She's also a co-editor for the Journal of Open Source Education. And I feel really silly now because I don't think I can properly articulate, Carol, how much you've accomplished and how amazing it is to be able to speak with you today. Welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you, Vanessa. You're so kind. Um, actually, probably I've accomplished a lot less than the community around the projects that I'm involved in. And it's really humbling to see how many different ways people have used Jupyter, have used Python. And obviously, my binder has been a wonderful thing for sharing research and also facilitating some education tutorials as well. So I'm really glad to be chatting. That's funny. I always said my binder, but of course it makes sense to be binder, sort of like a school binder. It's one of those awkward words that you read and you never hear anyone pronounce and then you hear it and you're like, huh, I've been saying that wrong for uh, three years now. That's okay. As long as you're using it, you can say it any way you'd like. Actually, the MyBinder project started in Jeremy Freeman's lab, and at some point he had switched roles and it was sort of languishing. So the Jupyter team re-architected the whole thing and rewrote it from scratch, and it's been really successful since then. So, but we have to thank him for getting it all started. Thank you, Jeremy. We have a lot to talk about. Before we jump into talking about specific communities and software, let's talk a little bit about you. Maybe we can go back to early days, maybe when you started programming or first learning how to program. Can you take us back to those days and tell us a little bit about your journey, maybe talk about schooling to your first jobs and what eventually led you to where you are today? Sure. I actually got exposed to programming as a fifth grader in elementary school way back in the 1970s like many students got involved now by an outreach program. So I was able to attend some training classes at Bell Labs and learned how to program with BASIC on a mainframe. And then my middle school actually had computers available and I was able to use some of the first Apple computers. And of course, like many young folks, programming games was fun for me. So I had taken an Atari game called Breakout where you knock out little colored cubes with a ball that was at the time square. But I've always kind of loved the problem solving and the exploration that I was able to do through software. And after school, I went to Duke University's School of Engineering, studied electrical engineering. While I was there, I also ran their cable television station that got broadcast out to the whole community. So that whole communications side of things and sharing knowledge became very important to me. From there, I attended MIT and I went to the Sloan School of Management where I studied applied economics and marketing. So took a little different path, but still doing a lot of coding and a lot of development and a lot of where technology meets people and how do you accelerate learning. And you know, from there, I bounced around industry a little 
took a long break to raise my kids because that was really important to me. You know, often you don't hear people saying, oh, this is a great thing that I took time off. Actually, it took 12 years off to raise my kids. But during that time, I got really involved in K through 12 scientific education in the U.S. and the governance of it and sort of the problems and how it could be better done, better funded. At some point when I came back from my time off, I really wanted to work in an area where I was able to share knowledge with others and to use technology tools for sharing that knowledge and got very involved in the Python community. And from there was teaching some workshop and stumbled across this little thing called IPython Notebooks. This was back probably 2012, 2013, and started doing some of the first workshops in San Diego using the notebooks and just found that people really responded to how intuitive the notebooks were. And the fact that there was a takeaway at the end of the workshop really reduced the stress level. And then on a personal note, I just thought the notebooks were fun, fun in the same sense of exploring code and exploring ideas and concepts and communicating it. It brought me back to the early days when I worked on some of the first Apple computers. From there, I kind of realized the notebooks were going to be something that had the potential to be a big game changer. And from there, got involved with the IPython and then became Jupyter Community. And the rest is sort of history, I guess, at this point. Wow, it's really interesting how notebooks are this perfect intersection between your life history and your interests. You combine learning and then programming, and it, it, it almost like it was meant to be. Yeah. One thing I'm wondering, you, you mentioned that you noticed a lot of problems with K-12 education, and that logically made me think, huh, does that feed forward into problems for college and maybe even graduate school education? Yeah, I think so. One of the things that has changed over time is our access to information is so vast now that one of the things that's really difficult is you have so much information that sorting through that information and kind of distilling down what you really need to know becomes more difficult. And I think the beauty of the notebooks went far beyond code because you have the ability to add prose and rich visualizations or multimedia into those notebooks, it sort of becomes a really great platform for communicating information, for allowing hands-on trial and error. Like if you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, how does a derivative work in calculus? Being able to use the code and also the visualizations with it you get a much more intuitive feel as to what the knowledge and what the underlying concepts really are. It's been great to see it used so heavily within a wide variety of education disciplines, certainly in the sciences, but you know, the digital humanities have also done a fantastic job. We're starting to see more use now in the K through 12 arena. That's sort of lagging a little bit, but we'll get there. The notebooks were really initially, I think, developed for doing exploration and crafting computational narratives. And from there, it's been used in many, many, many different ways. 
I really liked the expression that you said, crafting computational narratives, because that's exactly what it is. It's a story, it's a narrative, and the notebook helps you to do that so well, and I never really thought about it like that. To go back and talking about sort of your background, I'm interested to know, before you took time off to raise your children, when you were making decisions about your education and what jobs to try, what drove those decisions? Did you have a particular career in mind or were you sort of following your heart? You know, I think for me, first and foremost, I loved math and I loved puzzles, but I also liked the human side of communicating with others and the teaching side of things. And electrical engineering initially gave me a way to build things that could help other people and combining that with management practices and communication skills that I gained while I was at MIT, as well as a little bit of technical knowledge there too. I would say my whole career has been a series of following my passions, following my interests, you know, not everything worked out. Not everything was what I thought it was, but if it wasn't the right thing, I moved on. One thing that was a common theme within it all was how do we use technology for people responsibly and use it to help them learn? And that sort of has been the common theme through all the jobs that I've taken and, you know, the academic experiences that I've had. I also sense a strong theme that you really like to have fun and you want people that are using your tools or your, your educational materials to also have fun. It is something that's really important to me. I, as a learner, always did better when I was engaged with the topic. You know, I needed to know the, why am I learning this? Why is this important in the real world? And if I didn't have that connection, was really hard to get excited about a subject. As I worked with students of all different ages, those key things to knowing, like, why would you use this programming language? Why Python? Ask those critical questions up front, because if you don't know why you're doing it, it's very hard for it to be fun and exciting and engaging and to keep those challenges going forward. So for you personally, what are your favorite kinds of things to learn? And as you've done all this work over the years, have you figured out that people have sort of different preferences for how they like to learn? I have. I actually have done a bunch of talks that kind of blend in some cognitive science of how people learn. In particular, there's been studies done at UCSD about how people learn when they're older versus younger, like foreign languages there's definitely a different pattern of whether you're using your senses or your pre-gained knowledge into how you learn. So I tend to be a very, somebody that needs to see and touch things. If it's just said to me, I don't necessarily pick it up right away. I need to kind of play around and explore with it. So I can definitely see that there's differences there. Some of my favorite things to learn are music and building the building things can vary from electronic stuff to code to presentations. But whenever I learn a new programming language, I try and apply it to a problem in music. Now, I'm a relatively new person to music and at least playing instrumental music. I did choir as a kid and 
it's always been something that I've enjoyed. But later in life, probably when I was about 40, I picked up guitar and ukulele and banjo. And I just found that it made learning a new software language a little more interesting to pick a problem that didn't feel, I don't know, like work. By applying the language into different problem spaces, whether it's crossword puzzles or scientific topic or economics, which I have an interest in, I just found it was easier to see the way that things could be used in different problem spaces. At the end, really evaluate, is this going to be helpful for me going forward? Or is this something that is more effort than benefit? I think I'm the same way in terms of learning. I won't pick up very much if I'm like sitting in a chair like a slug watching someone. But if I just start trying to build something, it just starts to kind of take shape in my head. And then I actually remember something. Right. Absolutely. And there's been some wonderful notebooks or series of notebooks that have been in tutorials. I can remember one that was about SymPy and PyDie basically had a series of notebooks that would walk you through how a person balances, you know, with the different forces and the different scientific equations that go with different forces in physics and biomechanics. And it really, you know, when you start adding sliders to say, okay, if your leg length was longer, how does that impact your balance? These are really kind of powerful things that accelerate learning because you're able to try different configurations fairly simply. Much like the digital photo, when it replaced film photos, the downside of creating a notebook is fairly small. It's not like you're etching it in a stone tablet. So you don't like it, you delete it. So here's a silly question. I use notebooks back when they first came out too. And I remember there's a transition from when I would use an IPython notebook to start the notebook versus a Jupyter notebook. Do you know why that transition happened? What was happening sort of on the community side? Of yeah, that? first and foremost, they're pretty much the same thing, sort of like a rebranding, if you will. When it was IPython notebooks alone as a name, people felt like, oh, I can only use Python within those notebooks, which in fact was not the case. IPython notebooks, later named Jupyter notebooks, were able to use many different computer programming languages. In particular, Julia, R, and Python are very commonly used within science and data science. So I think the name, I think it was back in 2014, got recrafted and said, okay, let's come out with a name that better reflects what the notebook can actually do. And at the same time, the actual code base was being split up so that it would be a little more modular. So it seemed like a good time to do that. It certainly did add a lot of confusion in that early days. And there's still a few people that call them IPython notebooks, but for the most part, I think people are pretty comfortable with the Jupyter name now. Yeah, I've definitely adopted. And the first year, maybe I, I would switch back and forth and get confused. And, but don't worry, I'm, I'm much better now. <laughs> Same with all of us, just like trying to support the community as we went through a big change like that took a lot of patience, time, and effort on the part of the Jupiter team. But I think Jupiter does better reflect 
where the notebooks are being used and where it's going to be used in the future. Totally agree. And I also love IPython as well. I think I use it probably every day. Was your first interaction with Python via the Jupyter project or a different project, or did you get involved somehow separately? Like many things in my life, it's sort of a weird meandering story. When I decided to come back from taking time off, I decided that I wanted to come back to tech on my terms. As a woman in tech who was an engineering manager before I stopped working, the climate was very different than it is today. And so I decided I wanted a community that put people in the forefront and valued some inclusion and wasn't going to look at me as a woman engineer as opposed to just an engineer. I started working with a nonprofit open source project called Open Hatch. That was probably back in 2011, 2012. They were a project that would help people learn how to make their first open source commit or contribution. And this was before there was tutorials on how to do that. And another key part of the nonprofit was to make projects more welcoming. So how do you do that in practice? It turned out that nonprofit used Django, which is a Python web framework, as part of their code base. And so I started learning it. I sort of enjoyed it. But what I really enjoyed with Python was just the fact that Python is used in so many different areas, from web development to scientific programming to circuit Python for hardware development. I just found it was a community that fit for me. I never went into it thinking, I'm going to be a Python core developer. I just understood from working with the language that there were things that I could offer the project that were perhaps more project management, more communications oriented than the project had been traditionally. It's been a, a great, valuable experience. Uh, Guido Van Rossum, who's the creator of Python, has been a wonderful mentor throughout the years and friend. It's been really great to see Python grow into so many different continents and the outreach that has been done has really, I think, strengthened the language, also offered things beyond just the language. I feel so strongly the same. Python is by far my favorite language. And just, just Django alone, I think I've built easily probably over 20 different interfaces. And it really is, I think they call it a framework for perfectionists or something like that. It really is true that you can get a beautiful web application with authentication and an API and really nice views up really quickly. Yeah, Django, you know, as well as Flask and Pyramid, they're all lovely to work with in the fact that you can get up and running really quickly. And I think in general, that is how Python is used. We have a rich ecosystem of third-party libraries, and it's those third-party libraries that are the magic within getting things done quickly. The language itself lends itself to rapid prototyping because it's a dynamically typed language, but the libraries really are the secret sauce, if you will. 
I like that the secret sauce and Python has been amazing for the scientific community because it's so easy to learn and it, then it exposes not just scientific libraries, but like you said, web interfaces and all these other tools that you wouldn't even expect. I know that recently Guido at least stepped down from his benevolent dictator role. Can you kind of tell us a bit about how the community is run, maybe how it was run, how it currently is run, and how it's changing? For many years, Guido was the benevolent dictator for life for Python, and he still is the benevolent dictator for life, probably like emeritus, if you will, or something, but it's a lot of work to run an open source project particularly an open source project, the scale of Python, you get lots of positive feedback, but anybody who's been a maintainer of an open source project knows you also get a fair amount of either negative or demanding feedback. And that can be hard because Python is by and large developed by volunteers. There are a few core developers that have time funded by their companies, but that's the exception as opposed to the norm. You know, there was one particular pep that was very controversial within the core development community and beyond that had to do with the walrus operator or the assignment operator. And I think frustration just got in the way and Guido said, okay, I've had enough. And Python core development community, you figure out how to make this work. So we kind of came together as a core development team, realized that we wanted to support Guido and do what was best for him, but also do what was best for the language. What we did is we went through a process of looking at some different governance models, having some internal discussions within the core development teams about that then sort of voting on which model seemed most promising. And although there were five or six models proposed, they were more similar than they were different. Ultimately, we selected the steering council model where five individuals would basically function in the manner that the benevolent dictator for life had functioned. Then we had an election for the inaugural council and myself, Brett Cannon, Barry Warsar, Nick Coughlin, and Guido himself were on that initial steering council, which I think was a really good thing to have Guido on the council because it added some continuity. On a personal note, I think all five of us had a lot on our plate. So the fact that Guido was doing all of this prior to the steering council model was, in my mind, huge and probably well beyond what any person should do. We're now in our second cycle of steering council, so we've transitioned. Guido has stepped down so he can do some of his own projects that really interest him. And Nick also stepped down, so we have two new members, uh, Victor Sinner and Thomas Waters, and it's just been a really productive way of running the community. We act more as a facilitator and consensus builder than we do as like an authoritarian body. And I think that has been what worked well for the community. When you mentioned the walrus operator, it made me think of a, a different question. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any patterns with respect to how different communities adopt to changes in Python, whether that be a new feature or a totally new version. 
I haven't seen a lot of, for example, walrus operators in researcher code. So I'm wondering if you've seen that kind of pattern where you'll add a feature or maybe there'll be a new release and it just either doesn't get really widely adopted or it takes like a really long time. Wow. There's a lot of questions within that question. In many ways, you know, we like to, as software developers, think in binary, like it's one way or the other way. But in, in reality, it's more like Python is this amorphous blob that has its own life based on the interests of the community and the core developers and what the needs are. The transition from two to three has been difficult for many people. Actually, the scientific Python world probably were the early adopters of Python 3. And that, I think, was a good thing. You know, it was a little bit due to the fact that I think many scientific projects start new and there are some that are legacy projects, but by and large, a lot of the research starts new projects. Whereas in industry, you've got a lot of legacy code and things that you need to build a business case in order to transition from Python 2 to 3. Over the years, tooling has been built to make that transition easier. In terms of the walrus operator, I've actually seen people start using it probably more in the web development or the library development side of things, maybe perhaps less so in what you would see within a notebook, like a end user facing code. You know, there's two things that I think drive successful adoption. One is, is it really filling a need that people have? And the other is, is the documentation or training around it clear enough that it can be used and adopted by people? Because it's great to have the feature, but if you can't use it, it's really not very helpful. So since we're on RSE stories, I want to ask you how you think about yourself. You probably don't say, hey, I'm a research software engineer, because that's a really recent thing. But how would you consider yourself and how do you think that might relate to what is normally considered, you know, research software engineers? I sort of had that title when I was working on the grant for Jupiter, but I'm not sure I really knew exactly what it meant to me. You know, I definitely know that there's folks like Sarah Gibson from the Turing Institute, who is a friend, who are doing much more work in defining what is research software engineering and best practices. And I think for me, I'm more a communicator of knowledge, a listener to what the community needs, and then somebody who tries to build things to meet those needs. I recognize that there are many problems in the world, whether they're scientific or social, that using data to come up with solutions is important, and therefore the notebooks help facilitate that. I like to think that I'm kind of providing the people who are on the front line, the domain experts, if you will, the tools with which to get their work done, perhaps in a nicer, more straightforward way. In that you are helping researchers by way of creating these tools, research software, I would definitely say that what you do falls within this domain of research software engineer. 
but you're definitely right. And that's why we have this podcast in the first place. You could argue that, okay, a research software engineer is someone that exists between researcher and programmer, pick your spot in that dimension, but it's so much more of a rich definition than that to include open source and people that work in HPC, people that are more community members or work on documentation or more user facing generally. I'm really glad that you're able to describe your role like that, because even if, if you don't consider yourself a research software engineer, you strongly fit within that schema. And I think it's important for a lot of people that don't fit the traditional stereotype of a research software engineer to realize that if they're in a role that is helping researchers by way of research software in some respect, that it validates them to be a research software engineer if they want to. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And so much of writing down best practices, the work that the carpentries do, to me, that's all within the realm of research software engineering, because it all either produces better researchers or ultimately better research tools and better research in the end. I think it needs a multidimensional approach, not just code. Exactly. That is so important to say. So we're coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your time. So I have just a few more questions. Do you happen to remember what your first Python script was? I do not remember what my first Python script was. I think it may have been using Music 21 which is a music theory library that Mike Cuthbert at MIT works on. It was basically taking notes and making it for sheet music in a song. But actually, I think my first open source pull request was a documentation change, so. What is the most interesting thing, maybe a niche thing that you can share with us either about Python or Project Jupyter or another one of your projects that most people maybe wouldn't know. Some people may know this, but one of the things that started off as sort of a niche thing was in the Interact open source community. Matthew Seal, Kyle Kelly, Safia Abdallah, and others, myself, we started writing this library called Papermill. And Papermill was so you could run a parameterized notebook, meaning that let's say I have a notebook that generates some sort of report and I want to run it with different data every day, I can use that same notebook and I'm able to annotate the cell in a way that says, okay, take the input from this variable in this cell, take the input in that variable in that cell and be able to execute it within a pipeline, sort of like you would do a batch job within HPC. Paper Mill is definitely a library that's worth checking out if you haven't checked it out. I have not checked that one out and I definitely will be checking it out. Cool. Okay, so last question. When you aren't working at your computer or since you like to build things, building something, what do you like to do in your free time? Oh, wow. Well, my absolute favorite thing to do in my free time when I'm not playing guitar is going tide pooling. I live in a little beach community in San Diego and I love going down to the beach and climbing around the rocks and looking at for octopus, sea stars. I just love being outside, particularly at the beach. 
That sounds really lovely. I went to Cape Cod in Massachusetts a couple times growing up, and I really liked it, even though it smelled like rotten eggs, I think, because of the sulfur. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But yeah, that's a beautiful part of the country as well. Carol, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you today. Your appetite for learning and just your breadth of knowledge and that you've created all of these inspiring, fun and interesting projects. It really makes you one in a million. You are very humble in the way you describe your work. I think you've had more impact than maybe you know. I'm personally a bit starstruck and I hope if there's any way that the community of research software engineers can help or collaborate with you, that you, you know, reach out to us, challenge us to do so. And I would just want to say thank you for the immense contributions that you've done in that space. And you keep moving forward and being inspired and learning new instruments and tooling and all these things that you love. Thank you so much, Vanessa. That's really kind. And I guess the one thing I will ask of everyone else is be passionate about things and share that passion and knowledge with others. It is really the gift that we can give to others. And that's how we make an impact, not as an individual, but as a group. Thank you. And it is my absolute pleasure chatting with you too.